powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello, hello, everyone. Hi, thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a massive thank you to my last guest, Trisha Lafarge. She has become one of my favorite guests, and her episode was incredibly popular. If you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 229, and we have a great episode lined up for you today. We have on the show Dick Wybrow. Now, Dick is the author of the incredibly popular Wolf Weir series and other books. Dick will be discussing his humble beginnings, how he became a writer, his thoughts on writing, how he became up with the Wolf Weir series, and so much more. Lots to discuss, so let's get Dick out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling today from his home in Auckland, New Zealand, Dick Wybrow. Dick, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? It is uh, summer where I am right now. It's beautiful. And according to my computer, a sunny, balmy 27 degrees. Nice. Which doesn't mean a lot to folks in the U.S., I understand. Although here, so Derek, so from the start, I've got, this is this is a learning moment. It's, it's, one, it's one to grow on. So I was given this cheat when I first got here because still in my head, I got to do Fahrenheit in my head because I grew up in the U.S., born in Canada, grew up in the U.S. And so basically what you do is you take that 27, you double it and add 30, and that will give you basically the temperature. So if you do that, you get what, 54, add 30, you get about 84. So 84 it's, a, it's low 80s. Right. And that it's, it's just a bit of a thumbnail sketch. But if you hear Celsius, double it, add 30, that'll give you basically an idea about if you should be wearing a T-shirt or if you're going to put on a sweater. So with the pandemic now winding down, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? It was, I mean, as a writer, it gave me more chance to write, but I was also doing television. That was about a 20-year career or so in television. And so we were essential workers, <laughs> which meant that I had to go in every single day because ours was kind of a news comedy program, uh, heavier on the news during the COVID times. Um, but in later days, those a little bit of comedy there. So I tell you what, the best part about that was the traffic because there was none of it. So I don't have a lot of complaints, which sounds cold, I realize when I say that, but from me personally aside from those early days <laughs> when i when i first came into the house and, and nobody really knew too much about covid19 where i had to come in through the garage strip down and get scrubbed like silkwood <laughs> before i came into the house but then after a week of that we're like ah it's fine but so yeah. otherwise other than that everything was kind of business as usual with just a shorter commute time all right 
So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? I was born in Canada. Uh, my father was a Kiwi, came over to the U.S. back in the late 60s. Always wanted to be in the U.S., but they have a quota system or had a quota system. So they're like, oh, go to Canada. They'll take anybody. And so he went up there, and that's where we met my mother, but always wanted to be in the U.S. And so when we were nine, uh, moved down to New Jersey, which was for a shy, chubby, red-haired Canadian boy, was baptism by fire, man. Uh, the Jersey school system was like nothing I had been a part of before. So I had to learn real quick about defensive techniques, which in my case was humor. Uh, and, you know, how I kind of learned to sort of keep sort of the, the bigger kids and more aggressive kids at bay was by being funny. I spent a lot of years up in the Midwest, up in uh, Minneapolis. And then uh, when I got older, I uh, got into radio and stand up comedy. And those careers kind of took me all over the country in Florida and Georgia, Missouri and California, all over the place. And yeah, and then after that, uh, about 10 years ago, I was actually working for CNN at the time. I was producing television for CNN News. And um, I was not totally happy in that scenario because the TV news environment is brutal. And so I was, I don't know what it was. It was like escape Googling or something. I was trying to find, how do I get out of here? And I Googled around and I discovered that I was actually a Kiwi citizen because of my father, Kiwi by descent. So I came into the room and I said to my wife, hey, it turns out that I'm actually a citizen of New Zealand. And she goes, swear to you, she goes, then what are we doing here? That was October, Derek. And by January, we were in country. So a quick turnaround. We've been here for the last 10 years as of uh, just a day or so ago. Nice. So what were your earliest career aspirations? Uh, to avoid getting a real job <laughs> as much as I could. That's why I, I've, you know. I always wanted to be a writer, but it was difficult at the start, especially when I was in my, my teens in that, because this is back in the day before, obviously, the internet and all this sort of thing, when you used to have to, like, when you would send a short story off to a magazine or something, you'd have to put in an S-A-S-E, a, -S -S -E, a self-addressed stamp envelope, pre-internet. Basically, what that meant is you basically put your address and then they're from, and then you put a stamp on that and then put your submission inside the envelope that you're sending to them. So, so ultimately what it came down to is when they rejected your material, you were paying for the stamp. <laughs> and I did that for, uh, I got about six months, 10 months, a year or so. And I was getting frustrated with it. And so at that point I was like, you know what? I have an idea. And it was, a, it was a bizarre idea. If I get up on stage and, and tell these stories, because this is Minneapolis in the early 90s and there are open mic nights everywhere, I could be published that night. So that was my mindset. And that sort of started this entire career path that I've taken. It was the idea of actually writing something and getting quote unquote published by going on stage that evening. And I developed that into doing stand-up. And then after sort of the stand-up sort of scene was starting to crumble a little bit because it was on TV so much. I, I wanted, once again, sort of avoiding a real nine to five job, I went into radio. But when you consider it stand-up comedy, your work day is about half hour, 45 minutes long. And now I'm doing four hours, a four hour shift. That's, <laughs> that's more than... That's like five times as much as I was doing before. Uh, and then same thing, radio started to collapse a bit when they started to change some of the laws and it became not as fun to be in radio anymore. And I saw a lot of people that were losing their gigs. And so I got out ahead of time and I got into television. My first gig was actually working with CNN. And so, but along the way, even though I constantly was avoiding like these 
real normal jobs. I was my workday was getting longer and longer. The, the show I just wrapped up uh, in here in, in New Zealand. That show was on the air for seven years, and I was doing ten hour days. <laughs> so I started my career doing forty five minutes as a stand uh, stand up comic, and then by the end of my career, I was doing ten hour days. But that show wrapped up in December, and now my days are mine, and I'm working as a full time author which now are 11 and 12 hour days. So I'm getting this wrong somehow, Derek. I'm going the wrong direction somehow, but at least I really love what I'm doing right now. Fair enough. What are your favorite memories from Brown College? <laughs> Brown College. At Brown College, what used to be Brown Institute, that was a, a radio program. It was a radio and media program. And I think some of the best memories I have from there would be just about the sort of the excitement, you know, I mean, everybody was looking to find their voice and like, you know, doing the radio thing. We did a little bit, some, a bit of, a bit of television, this sort of thing. And so my favorite memories was watching the, the other creatives around me discover who they were um, and, and also discovering who I was and what my voice was. And it takes years and years to work that out. But I think that was the most fun, just the excitement of like, you know, which one of us is going to be a star was kind of this sort of vibe around the place. It was pretty neat. Hmm. Can you pinpoint the exact moment in your life where you decided to become a full-time writer? I can pinpoint the moment that I found out that I could create um, and it came down to pudding. Basically, I mentioned earlier that, you know, there's this, you know, nine year old kid coming in, you know, Canadian, uh, chubby, red haired kid coming into the school system in New Jersey. And these kids would come by. So I sat by myself, as all new kids do. That sad story of the kid sitting by himself at the lunch table. That was me. Uh, and a lot of us have been there, especially if we move around a lot. And so I was sitting there. And when I would sit there with my bag lunch, these kids would come by, these three kids in particular. And they would dig through my lunch and they'd pick out, you know, the best tasting thing I had. And it was pudding. And I was a chubby nine-year-old kid. Pudding was my salvation at that time. And so they'd come on by, they would go, what you got for lunch today? And then they would sort of dig through. I wouldn't say much. And then just one day, I just fell into this sort of pudding defense mode sort of thing. And I just kind of went off. So these guys came by and I was half prepared for it, but I didn't think I was going to do it. And I just snapped. They're like, what'd you got for lunch today? And I went, oh, I got, I got booger eyeball sandwiches. And I got, and I just went on this gross out tangent and they laughed their butts off about it. They, they thought it was so funny. And most importantly, they didn't take my pudding. And so it was fascinating to me as a nine-year-old, you know, your brain sort of just started to work stuff out. And only in hindsight did I realize what that buzz was about. It was great to get them laughing. It was gross out of humor, but it was great to get them laughing. But it was this idea about how humor is a power shift. If I'm dealing with somebody who has, let's say, power over me, if I can make them laugh, I'm now leading that conversation. I, I'm now controlling that room. It's the same thing with stand-up comedy. When you get up on stage, the audience sort of hands that control over to you, take us on this sort of journey. And so that was sort of the moment when I realized that I could put stories together or I could maybe do with humor stuff that other people didn't quite or weren't able to quite do. And I think a lot of that came from my love of stand-up comedy from an early age. I just really loved stand-up comedy, listening to tapes and, and, and records and this sort of thing, records back in the day. But yeah, that was really the big turning point when I was like nine, 10 years old. And I realized the power of humor and that eventually sort of just morphed into writing. Who are your stand-up idols? Well, 
my biggest idol from when I was growing up is not really one I can talk about anymore. Uh, that's Bill Cosby. Uh, it's in later years. It's it's not it's not been something I can tell people about so much. But I had literally memorized his albums. In fact, so much so I went to the Minnesota State Fair. And I saw Bill Cosby in Minnesota State Fair, it might have been like 90 or 91. And maybe, maybe I'd had a couple too many wines, but he was up on stage doing this thing, trying out some sort of newer material. And he decided to end his show with something he knew worked. But the thing was, is it was this, uh, this one routine called Dentist, the dentist, going to the dentist. Well, I had heard that so many times off his himself album that while he's doing it on stage, verbatim, by the way, word for word, I started doing it too. <laughs> and so, so I'm sitting there and these people in front of me are like, what is this guy doing? And then they, their eyes get big, like, how is he doing that? Is he controlling Bill Cosby? What is happening right now? And so that was, uh, that was sort of what, I guess, my joy of understanding how the bits and pieces come together. But I love, you know, the Carlins and, and many years before I was around the, like the Bob Newhart's, the storytellers, I always love the storytellers. And then later on, you know, even like, you know, we got some great storytellers now with the Chris Rocks. And um, uh, Kevin Hart's an amazing storyteller. I mean, you know, Jerry Seinfeld does his thing. It's more that observational style. But I always just love the mechanics of humor. I loved stand-up comedy the way if you could take a word and just move it in a sentence, it goes from a chuckle to just a, a, just a gut-busting laugh. And I'm fascinated by that idea. And it takes a long time. And it's really difficult to actually put all that into words, why this works. And I think eventually you got, you got to get a bit of a sixth sense but how does this work for me? Um, the advantage I have is like when I'm writing and I get some line that's quite funny, it's not like I constructed that particular line usually. It's sort of like this line just sort of floats down to me <laughs> and I laugh and I type it in. So I don't know where that comes from, probably somewhere in the subconscious, but, but yeah, I love humor. I just absolutely love it and always have. When it comes to writing, how did you overcome you know, the fear, the little voice in your head to begin writing your first book? I never did. You never do. I don't think you ever do as a writer. I'm, every book I start, I have, a, I have a particular process I have. And so when I start a book, I hang my head and go like, ah, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I can't. <laughs> I, I can't do this. It, it's every book. And I've written a series, uh, eight of nine books in one series. I'm just wrapping up uh, the fourth book in Kane, uh, the Wolfware series. Uh, that's a five book series. And every single one of those books I, I, I had that little voice in my head saying, you know, I can't do this, but it, sort of the maxim I sort of go on. And it's something that I heard in stand-up comedy, a version of it. It was actually, I think it was Jerry Seinfeld, I believe, who was talking about the idea of getting up on stage. And he, he was saying that every time you get up on stage, you do stand-up every single time. It's a little bit like you're in a, in like a railroad uh, tunnel. And every time you get up, you move one railroad tie forward. Every time you get up, you get a little bit closer to getting into the light. And so my version of that is I make sure that every single day I write some days like today, earlier before we spoke, I wrote about 6,000 words. And if you're a writer or know a writer, tell them about 6,000 words. That's a heck of a lot of words to do in one day. But there's some days I can't do that. I just don't have it. Or, you know, you get some of that anxiety kicks in and some of the, you know, those demons sort of like yelling at you in either ear. And so sometimes it becomes a page. If I can't do a page, I do a paragraph. And I can't do a paragraph, I'll do a sentence. At least with that, I know at the end of the day, I've moved just a little bit further, further along. And I've learned that that helps my head enough to start the next day. When you encounter writer's block, what is the first thing you do to overcome it? 
I don't think about the writing. I think Neil Gaiman has this great advice saying that if writing doesn't have to be writing, as long as you're thinking about it. So basically I can go, um, <laughs> I write in a garage, a carpeted garage in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, because here in New Zealand, they carpet their garages. I don't know why. There's a bit of a housing shortage. I guess the idea is you turn them into rooms, but most people don't park in their, their garages. They actually turn them into rooms. So I'm in a two-car garage that's been carpeted, and I have one quarter of that, and that's my office. All the rest of this, outside this one quarter, all the rest of this, that's her That's her house. <laughs> all of that is her house. But so within this space, I've got my desk here, and I've got a chair. And so what I'll do is, if I'm struggling, with something, I'll go get away from the desk and sit in the chair. And to, per uh, Gaiman's advice, he was like, you can't look at, you know, social media, you can't watch videos, you got to sit and think about the book. And I do find that if I have those quiet moments, and you just think about that one particular thing, either the characters or the plot line or wherever it might be, I do it that way. And another version of it too, is if I get too much of my head or distracted, I get on my motorcycle and I start riding. And riding through the hills around here in Auckland, New Zealand, it's beautiful. And I do find that when I sort of pull my head out of the anxiety of writing, 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 that that creativity starts to come in and suddenly I'm starting to find solutions or at least the path towards those solutions. So basically it comes down to when I get a writer's block, I stop writing and I sit down and I think about it. Hmm. The flip side of that coin that I want to ask you is, you know, what, you've been writing now for a long time. What do you love most about writing? I think it's about, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, I think it's that magic that comes in. When I was in radio, I had the uh, it, I had the great pleasure to interview many old school rock, rock stars and some newer ones too. And, and I think, so I say Tom Petty, and I know it sounds like a bit of a name drop, but I interviewed a lot of these folks because I was doing rock radio. And Tom Petty had this amazing answer to when people asked him about creativity. And he really casually and a little quirky smile, he goes like, uh, he doesn't know where the ideas come from. He said, they come down like these little gifts. And I thought that was perfect, the, but just the way he said that, because it is, they're like these little things that sort of come down to you. And when you're really in the zone of writing, when things are really hopping along, just moments pop in, you know, and you got to sort of trust that process. I was writing something today where a character was doing something with their hands. And I was like, I don't even know what that is, but I just throw my own hands up and go like, well, I just let it lie. Let's see what that turns into. So trusting in the fact that this is another one of these little gifts that comes down that'll somehow later in the story will kind of manifest into something else. So that's that amazing thing. And if you're religious, it, it sort of feels like, I've heard somebody else saying that moment was that, that inspiration, even small bits is like touching the face of God. That's what I mean. That's the part I really love. It's just that, that touch into the sort of other side or supernatural. I don't know what it is. That's the best part. The writing is still a job, but those moments of inspiration that comes in, it feels like you're connected to something bigger than what we are. And it's an amazing feeling. Hmm. Let's talk about the Wolfware series where did sure. the inspiration come from to begin and continue that series? The inspiration came from, I was writing another book. So I'd written, I've written eight books of nine and this other series I was doing. And then, like I mentioned, I was in TV news 
And so I sort of felt that I had to write something in the world of TV news. And so I wrote about this, this reporter, this woman named Melody Sunday. But in doing so, anytime I write a book, I always do some interviewing. I speak to people who know far better than I do, which is just about everybody. And every time I interviewed a journalist, I kept on coming up with the same phrase over and over and over again. And it's sort of a maxim that describes what's a news story and what isn't a news story. And basically it's like, dog bites man, that's not a story because it's common, happens all the time. But man bites dog, that's a story. And so that's something that most journalists have heard before. Dog bites man, that's not a story. Man bites dog, that's a story. And that little phrase got stuck in my subconscious and rolled around and rolled around and rolled around. And eventually, after I got done writing this uh, this other book, the TV news one, I sort of said to myself, well, what if that was a story? And so I started to think about what that would be. And so it turned into this Wolfware series. And so man bites dog, instead of man bites dog, it's man bites wolf. And so this infected soldier in the story ends up biting this wolf under particular circumstances. And the next day, the wolf becomes a human. And eventually, over the next year, becomes a six foot seven French Canadian. <laughs> because he, this all happened in Canada. Um, but it's, it, I, there was one part of that where I was saying to myself, you know, as a selfish sort of writer, I didn't want to wait. You know, because when he turned, when the full moon comes out, he turns into the wolf wear and it's wolf wear because he's not quite a werewolf because it's kind of reverse. He was a wolf bitten by a guy. He turned to the wolf wear. But so I was saying to myself as a writer, I want to enjoy the entire process and not have to wait once a month to have him turn into this cool little monster. And so I was trying to think about like, well, why? And I had not seen this. I Googled around a bit and maybe I'm not Googling right, but I'm not seeing this question answered anywhere. Why is it just the full moon? Moonlight's moonlight. So I started to think, well, what if it was a half moon? What if it was a quarter moon? What might he turn into then? And of course, the answer was if he's sort of a wolf kind of character, werewolf character with a full moon, a half moon or a quarter moon, he'd be a lesser wolf, which is a dog. So when the, the moonlight touches his skin and it's like a half moon, he becomes a pug. When it's a little quarter moon, he might become like a chihuahua or something. And his size depends upon the moon's face. And so that was sort of the inspiration. It all started with another book and this little phrase that dropped into my subconscious that rolled around and rolled around a little like a little bit of a rock tumble until it polished up and came out the other side. And it's it's been a, just a complete joy to write this fun series up until now. Nice. Okay, Duval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Dick Weibrow. Miss, just you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Pay attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Hello, Duval Nation. Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek DeBall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. 
If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. We're Sam's Army in the Gang's all here. Sam's Army in the Gang's all here. Sam's Army in the Gang's all here. For glory, the cup and then to drink some beer. Oi, this is Chad from The Shame. We're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com or listen to it on almost all the streaming services. We'll see you down the pub. Cheers. Water Gang, I'm Kina, the host of the boozy and delightfully foul mouth comedy podcast, Historical AF. I'm a nerdy public historian that is joined by a special guest each week to deliver funny, weird, spooky, and morbid historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Past topics have included the magical manhood of Russia's mad monk Rasputin, my hot take the aliens did not build the pyramids, serial killers that both my parents happened to meet as children, Listen, I know what you're thinking. Kina, how do you even exist right now? Also, who was it? All right, I'll tell you. Spoiler alert, it was Sean Wayne Gacy and Mark Allen Smith. Anywho, we can't forget the spooky. I've covered topics ranging from the ghosts of Anne Boleyn to the night marchers in Hawaii. Don't look at them, guys. If you do, you have to strip naked and you have to lay on the dirt. Dim's the rules. You can listen and subscribe to Historical AF wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Historical AF Pod. And finally, you can check out the website for links to listen, sources, because citing is sexy, photos, and more at historicalafpodcast.com. Okay, bye! Hi there, this is David Sinclair, singer, songwriter, and band leader, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called The Bands of London from my latest album, Apropos Blues. You can hear it on Spotify or anywhere else you access good music. I wanna see the bands of London and feel my ears ring like empty shells. I wanna, I wanna see the bands of London feel my ears ring like empty shells. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? If you want Kleenex for your classroom, maybe you should think about buying your own, with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. 
I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 229 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with conclusion of our interview with the author of the Wolf Weir series, Dick Wybrow. It has been incredibly successful. Were you prepared for how well the books would be received? In a simple answer, no. Because I've been writing for many, many years. And I was... I was taken aback by how much people like this. In fact, it's funny how many people come to the story and they'll come from other places. Like a lot of the the werewolf books are like romance, paranormal romance. And mine is not one of those things, but I have paranormal romance readers that come in and they'll say something like, Oh, I thought it was going to be this. I wonder if they get together. And then I realized it never get together. And this one, just a couple of weeks ago, the woman said, I was so glad it was so refreshing not to have this sort of fake tension between the two characters. And I even have people that don't read because I'm not a monster book reader myself. It's just this idea of really interested me. So I have people that have never read what you might call a fantasy book, I guess, um, who come in and it's almost like a fantasy sort of uh, starter kit or gateway drug <laughs> because there's not a lot of that in there. But I had this amazing experience, Derek. Um, I was, I got to tell you about it. it's one of my favorite stories about the series, just people getting into the characters and loving the characters as much as I was. And I'm, I really mean it's really touching for people to be so invested. And so I do reader conversations every now and then. So people reach out to me on Facebook and say, hey, listen, we put a reader group together. We've all read your book. Can you come speak with us over Zoom like you and I are speaking now? There's video you and I are speaking at the moment. And so um, I've spoken to folks in the U.S., uh, in Canada, um, Australia, and then uh, there was this one in the U.K. And that morning, I was actually starting book three. And like we were talking before, sort of, I was struggling a bit with where I might go with it. I was kind of forcing and like, oh, I'm just missing a piece here. I don't quite know it. Well, I put everything aside, and I sat down to do this conversation with this readers group in Britain. And this lovely woman, and I always say that she's from New Brighton. She might have said that. I don't remember. I wish I'd recorded it. Um, But to me, New Brighton sounds cool. And if somebody's listening from the UK, they might be going like, it's not cool. But to me, it sounds cool. So this woman from, in my head, New Brighton, all she said was how much she loved the characters and loved their relationship, this found friend kind of idea. And she says, I can't wait to hear more about Kane when he was growing up, that year that he spent on the farm. Because like I mentioned, over that year's time, he becomes a six foot seven French Canadian, but there's a year where he spent with this older French Canadian couple and they teach him about the bits and pieces about being a human. And so she goes, I can't wait to hear more about those years when Kane was growing up and how he learned how to be human and all those sort of influences. And I said, 
that's funny because that's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing in the book now. Funny you should mention that, but but that's what I mean. That's sort of inspiration from somebody else who is really into the story and just voicing her desire, voicing her interest in what she wanted to hear from the series. And the coolest part is if you step back and you go like, well, obviously he planned it this way. He's like, no, I hadn't. It was that amazing question from this lovely woman from New Brighton that sort of influenced book three. And she was 100% right. That's exactly where it just fit in perfectly and helped guide him sort of some of the advice he'd gotten from his parents, human parents. It helps guide him out of a really difficult situation. So it's been it's been a really roller coaster ride. Within a couple of weeks of this book hitting bestseller list, I got three different audiobook companies reach out to me. Uh, they want to do the audiobook. And so I've gone with Podium. And Podium Audio just put up book one just two weeks ago. Uh, book two is coming out here in a couple of weeks. And it's been going great. And they got these amazing actors to pull it off. It's beautiful what these guys have done with it. It's been just a real thrill ride since the start. That's amazing. So you've been very open with, about your struggle with narcolepsy. Yeah. How has that influenced your writing? You know, it's funny. When I first, like, it's like anybody who has a particular, I'll say disorder, whatever you want to call it, right? If you don't know what is troubling you, it's funny. My wife just went for some tests yesterday because she was having a problem with something. And all her tests came back positive. She's fine. And then... Which was great to see because you want the test to be good, but some part of her was disappointed <laughs> because she wanted something in there to tell her why she felt the way she felt. And so I had grown up my entire life just feeling sleepy all the time, and I never quite knew about it. And so I eventually got diagnosed with narcolepsy in my late 20s just out of pure chance that it came around to. This doctor noticed it in me. And once I sort of had an idea about this thing where you're sleepy all the time and I describe it to people or somebody else has described it to me is, you know, what does narcolepsy feel like to like your average person? And so what they had said was stay up for 30 hours, now go to work and now come home, make dinner. And then after your dinner, sit down and chat with the spouse. And that's what it feels like. And I don't know what you feel like uh, on any given day, but yeah, I'm sleepy all the time, 24 seven. But whereas in the beginning, that was something that I think was really like, oh, look at this. I'm always going to have this. I was pretty negative about it. But eventually, I started to think about that creative, creative element that I've got in my life. And uh, this is sort of the example I like to use is, do you know when you're lying down and going to sleep? Just that moment as you're falling asleep, and you get those amazing ideas. Like, oh, that's I, I should write that down. That is really, really good. And you wake up the next morning, you can't remember it. And you didn't write it down. <laughs> that state, that sort of dreamy state that people have as they're falling asleep, I'm in that state 80, 85% of my day. And I think it really does contribute to the creativity in my stories. I mean, take a look at the story. Cain is about a wolf who gets bit by a man, who turns into a human, and then sometimes he's a werewolf, and sometimes he's a dog. That's gonzo. That's insane. And I think a lot of that comes from this, this hazy state that I fall into to be able to create these particular characters. So I've taken, I guess, this disorder, and where something that really sort of was a bit of a downer for me, kind of blackened me a bit, I've sort of just put some reins on it, and I'm riding it. And now I'm sort of using it to my advantage. And I see narcolepsy these days as a superpower, you know, and it's, yeah, it's really challenging sometimes. And when I'm speaking with you, Derek, I got to make sure I am focused directly on what you and I are talking about. Because if I let my mind wander, I'll space out. And you'll be, you'll be talking to somebody just staring at you down the camera lens. <laughs> He's not really there right now. But yeah, it's been something that I, 
it's taken some time, but now I see it as a positive in my life. Hmm. What is one hidden pitfall with writing that prevents people from succeeding? I think they get too worried about the next sentence or the next line. So if you're somebody who wants to write a book, maybe you've started a couple of different ones or you can't quite finish the one you're writing. I think the problem is people get so wound up about, oh, I don't, how do I, this next part, I don't really, don't worry about that. Just get your clay together. First drafts, all authors will tell you this, first drafts suck. They all suck. All first drafts are terrible. So just go ahead. And if you don't exactly know what happens in this next part here, because that's where people get hung up. They're worried about what happens next. Just go ahead and write, you know, Kane does something funny and then move on to the next part. And then eventually you keep writing and you'll start to realize, oh, you know what? This next thing that's happening here, I could refer to that in that part where I just put Kane does something funny and I fill that part in. But I think it's just getting to the end, just get to the end and have your big lump of clay. And then during the revision, then you can start to shape it. Don't get too worried. And all authors write differently. Stephen King writes basically a chapter. Uh, and then he sort of edits as he goes. And so when he's done writing a book, he's kind of done from what I understand. But there's plenty of authors like me that just writes dreck, <laughs> just all this big lump of clay. And then in the revision, you shape it into something that looks like a story. So I think that's what you got to do. Just keep pushing. Don't worry about that next line. Don't even worry about that next chapter. Put a placeholder in and keep going. Get your clay together and shape it afterwards. What is now? You've been in the business for of selling books for quite a while, so you might have a great yep. perspective on this next question. What is your biggest frustration in marketing and selling your books? I think it's just you know it, there are so many people out there, right? And to be able to find the people that would get into your book, that's that's difficult to be able to find that. And you can do that through social media a bit. And I do have uh, ad campaigns that run on various platforms, that sort of thing. I think the the biggest challenge in part is because I'm an independent author, um, like, a, like a, a good number of authors. And so I'm up against multi-billion dollar publishing houses. And so it's just sort of getting noticed. And, and with my story, and this is why I say it's not really a monster book, because like I said, I don't really read monster books. I've never read Twilight. I, I've read one monster book and that was Mary Shelley Frankenstein. And that was like when I was 20, that's really it. So I think when people go, Oh, werewolf book, I don't like werewolf books. And they might turn around away from it. It's like, it's not really about that. It's this story is about two people that don't quite fit into the world. It's him and this woman named Imelda, who's a, former criminal, maybe not so former, but they kind of come together to sort of solve this, this issue he's got to find the secret, how to turn him back into a wolf. But basically it's about these two people in the world, they don't quite fit in, but once they sort of come together as friends, they realize that together they do fit in. And so that's really what the story is. So I guess the one part when it comes to creating these stories is about finding the audience. And the other part is just trying to get people to realize that there's plenty of the monster stuff in there, but it's not, I wouldn't define it as a monster book or even a fantasy book. It's just sort of a fun book about these two cool characters. Yeah. De Coupetons said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your youngest self. What would you say to him? You'll be fine. Ultimately. I think it's, you'll be fine. You know, because uh, like a lot of people, I carry a lot of anxiety. Um, with a narcolepsy, I'm supposed to go and take two naps a day. <laughs> the moment I lie down and close my eyes, my head starts racing. Same thing at night. I'm up four or five times a night. My head starts racing. And I just got to remind myself, you'll be fine. 
You know, I, I really think that's the most like, you know, any given day, you know, there might be one day where I sell this amazing number of books. And then the next day I sell like half of that. And I go like, that's it. This is all falling apart now. And I feel that way, but I remind myself, you know, it'll be fine. Eventually it'll, it'll be fine. And, and I think that's the advice I would have to my younger self is don't get so hung up on the day today. Take a look at the weeks and the months, even the years. And it's difficult for a young person to hear that, but it'll be fine. Just keep doing what you're doing and punch through and it'll work. Hmm. So what's next for Dick? Uh, it's going to be, I've got, uh, like I said, I'm wrapping up book four in this particular series. There is some very early interest, and I don't want to put a kibosh on anything, very early interest in potentially turning into a TV series, but I don't want to say too much more than that, which is really, really exciting. We'll see how that goes. But again, you know, I've been in this business long enough to know that could fall through. The, the odds of that falling through are even more likely than it actually happening. Um, then after this, I've got a new series that's starting to bubble. And that's the funny part about writing. When you're writing the characters, writing a series, there's five books in this series. So I'm finishing book four in the next couple of days, send that off to my editors after I do a couple of revisions. And I've got book five and that'll be done. But I already have another series knocking on my brain saying, I want in, I want in. So once I get this wrapped up here, um, just before the middle of the year, uh, this particular series, I'll be off to the new one. All right. As we enter the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question. Dick, what do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? My idea, I guess, of relaxing is just, and this is going to sound lame, is hanging out with my wife. She's my, my most favorite person in the world. You know, the whole thing about, you know, if you're on a desert island, could pick one person who would, there's no question who I'd pick to be with, you know, it would be Bill Cosby. No, it wouldn't, it'd be, <laughs> especially nowadays. No, it would be my wife, of course. I just love just hanging with her. And, you know, like she's got a garden in the back. And so when I'm not writing, I'll go out, just kind of hang out with her. And that might sound lame to some people, you know, like maybe it should be bungee jumping because it's big, a big thing here in New Zealand or, or riding my motorcycle. But uh, the, the thing I'd like to do to chill and enjoy my time is just spending it with Tiffany. That's, that's the greatest part of my day. And I look forward to it every time I'm writing and I know she gets home here in the next couple of hours. I look forward to that. Just kind of hang out with her and hear about her day. Mm. So what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Uh, just head to my website, dickwybro.com is the easiest way. Um, and then, you know, I'm on Facebook. I do, I'm pretty active on Facebook. Uh, you know, I know that's a pretty old person sort of place to be, but that's sort of a place where a lot of my readers are. So yeah, if you want to find out what's going on, just, you know, follow me on Facebook and you get a lot of updates there. Um, otherwise just head to my website. Okay. Dick, I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? I would say, because I've been talking a lot about how I talk. I've been talking about this idea of, you know, being on the radio or stand-up, and that's me talking to other people. And I think, and this is something I, I learned in great, in large part from my wife, is one of the greatest things you should do is shut up. Just listen to somebody else. The gift that you can give to somebody when they're telling you something, and instead of you just waiting for their lips to stop moving so you can get your point in or get the thing you need to say, just shut up and just listen. And you'll be surprised because so few of us actually do that when someone's talking to us. Just listen to what they're saying and pay attention to what they're saying and be into what they're saying because they're really into it. And that lifts them up in the end. That lifts you up and it feels great. Um, in fact, if you were to go to, let's say, go to a party or something, 
If you just listen to somebody like that, and I saw Bill Clinton do this many, many years ago at a radio convention, just really being into what that person was talking about. And he barely said a word. He just sort of asked him a couple of questions about what they were really, really into. And he said maybe 25 words and they walked away and went like, that's the greatest conversation I've ever had. It's because someone listened. So I'm saying is for me talking about talking so much, sometimes just shut up and listen to somebody else and give them that gift. And it kind of, that gift comes back to you. All right. The Wolfware series can be found on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you buy your books online. Dick, this has been a real pleasure. Best of luck to you and best of luck in all your future endeavors. Thank you, sir. I really enjoyed it, Derek. And just like that, Devall Nation, we come to the end of episode 229. I want to thank Dick for coming on the show. Best of luck to you with the next book and best fortunes for the rest of your career. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, please drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. With everything with that logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really great t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner with all this merch. Click that to be taken to our store on Tea Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, what did everyone think of the Super Bowl? Did your team win? I know not everyone can win, but it was a hell of a good game and apparently the second most watched television event in the history of mankind behind the moon landing. Not sure if we had the Swifties to thank for that or not, but either way, it was a great game. Congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs and the Queen of the Chiefs, Taylor Swift. No star, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.